Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today on the Health Conscious Podcast. My name is Peyton. We're so excited that you're joining us today. We hope that you are continuing to enjoy the podcast, leaving us reviews, subscribing so you get every episode. Today's a special episode. We are joined by Rich Namoro from Huron Consulting. Rich has more than 30 years of leadership experience as a management consultant in the healthcare industry, working with payers, providers, academic health centers, and integrated delivery networks to strengthen performance. He has led a range of initiatives helping organizations rethink and redesign their revenue cycles, supply chains, cost management practices, decision support systems, and work processes. Prior to joining Huron, Rich was a partner at Computer Sciences Corporation, where he guided clients through the selection and implementation of large-scale enterprise applications. Previously, he served as a regional partner at Ernst & Young for 20 years, where he was responsible for serving the Pacific Southwest healthcare payer and provider markets with performance improvement, IT, and financial services. Rich is also an adjunct professor of finance at the University of Southern California. He is a frequent guest lecturer and speaker at USC, Cornell University, which is his alma mater, and various regional professional associations, hospital boards, and local academic executive programs. We're so excited for Rich to join us today. We'll toss it over to him. Well, Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. We're, we're really appreciative of your time, and, and I know we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things, but I think to get started might be helpful for you to tell us a little bit about Huron and, and your work there. Sure. Thank you so much, Peyton and Christian. It's great to be here today. I am a managing director at Huron. We're a relatively young company. Huron was started around 2003 or 2004, really from the litigation support practice of Arthur Anderson, who, as you may recall, unfortunately was the victim of a lot of concerns expressed by the federal government, the SEC, the AICPA regarding independence uh, between the audit and tax services and consulting services. So uh, uh, Arthur Anderson was shut down by the federal government or their licenses were revoked. And um, Huron actually was started the very next Monday morning. So uh, they started in Chicago. Uh, Fun fact, their first client was United Airlines and then healthcare followed very quickly thereafter. And um, approximately 18 years later, we're an $800 million a year company providing professional services to four or five key sectors, including general analytics uh, and um, strategic planning services across multiple industries. And our healthcare practice is among the largest in the country, uh, employing about 1,200 professionals and about 60% of the revenue of Huron. Well, that's great. And it's been a company that I know a lot of people have become more and more um, aware of over the last couple of years. And so it's great to hear more. I think one thing that has changed the world a lot in the last year is obviously the COVID-19 pandemic. So having a career in consulting, what do you expect to change in consulting kind of post COVID-19 in the consulting world? Yeah, so rather than really talk about what we did during the the, um, pandemic shutdown, um, let's talk about what looks like will happen afterwards. And and really the two topics are kind of intertwined. Um, What we found is that remote delivery through a variety of sources, whether it be Zoom or conference calls or other uh, technologically supported mechanisms Um, does work in consulting. And so I think looking forward, 
what we see is I think a lot less in-person delivery and a lot more remote analytics, remote um, modeling or, or um, uh, remote delivery of interim status reports and things like that. I think that will result in several things a much greater life-work balance, which we're always concerned about, even pre-pandemic, for our teams of people. Number two, reduce cost to clients. They do pay for the travel-related expenses. Uh, and if you have uh, 50, 60, 70% less travel, that will result directly in cost savings. So um, that's, uh, that's why I think the future will be uh, way, way more remote delivery uh, than in-person delivery going forward because we've proven to the market that we can be just as effective that way. Now that said, in many operations, improvement practices, being able to physically observe a hospital or the client's physical layout will always be important. And therefore there will always be travel, which we haven't done for the last nine to 12 months. But it will be, um, uh, but the real reduction will be the team of people that are used to working in a client's conference room where the client doesn't necessarily interact or see these people very much. Yeah, and I, I think you talked about this a little bit. Um, there's a lot of dynamic environments when it comes to consulting. And I know that's the allure for a lot of people who go into the, into the career. A lot of people who listen to this podcast are maybe MHA students or MBA students or people who are just starting their careers. Why should they consider a job in management consulting? Well, um, you know, you're talking to somebody who may be a bit biased because since I graduated Cornell and Sloan, um, I have been a career management consultant. So we're looking at about 35 years. And part of it is the, there are several reasons where I think I've, you know, kept in this business. Number one is the continual learning process. One of the things we like to say is our services have a shelf life of somewhere between 24 and 36 months, and then they're obsolete then they just don't align with the problems and challenges that the market and our clients are facing. So we have to continually evolve our services, which means continual growth and development and learning. Number two is the diversity. Being able to work for a small community hospital in a suburb or even in a rural setting is really interesting. And then you get to work for a large urban academic medical center and deal with their problems and everything in between. So if you're a student of learning, if you're a student of the industry, if you love to continue to challenge yourself and grow professionally, you know, consulting is fairly unique in achieving those goals uh, because of, again, the rich diversity of clients and challenges and solutions that we're always trying to create, you know, to keep our business vibrant and aligned. Yeah, even after just working consulting for a summer, it was really striking for me, just the diversity of, I felt like I got experience in dog years just after working in just for a few months, right? I mean, I worked on a project for a large health system and one for a rural community hospital and some thought leadership work with m and they were all three very different projects. And so I definitely, definitely can see the value of that. Um, so, you know, one of the cons... One of the, um, the topics that we've talked about before, Rich, of course, you're, you're a great friend to the Sloan program and a loyal alum. Um, 
And in some of our calls, you brought up this concept of, of this, this trend that we're at the forefront of, of acute care at home. Um, and as we're talking about this, listening to, listening to you, um, listening to you to explain this to us, I, I, you know, I thought, man, this would be great for our podcast listeners to hear, because uh, I think this is really interesting and, and an intriguing idea. So, um, and you also shared an article on LinkedIn about it recently as well. Um, so I, I, you know, before coming to Sloan, I worked um, for a home health and hospice agency in subacute care, but mostly, you know, patients at that time, point in time were receiving care at home, but they're at that point in time, their condition had stabilized to some degree. Um, but this idea of acute care at home takes it a step further where, uh, you know, traditional acute non-stabilized illnesses or conditions can be treated within the home itself. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about the concept of acute care at home um, and why aspiring healthcare leaders should be aware of this trend? Yeah, you know, acute care at home is really, I think, a result of the learnings of the pandemic uh, that I think really shook healthcare to its core. And uh, it, the adoption of digital health, digital front doors, uh, digital delivery was always viewed as uh, non-impactful for healthcare or, you know, it's a very traditional business run by, you know, delivered by nurses, physicians, other clinicians, and run by, you know, well-trained hospital administrators. And the system is very slow to change because part of it is the financing. And then on top of the delivery is the, is the reimbursement. And reimbursement models are very slow to change as well. And uh, the pandemic, when I say it shook it to the core, if people can't go to hospitals to receive their care, either because they're afraid to, or the hospitals just aren't open, at least not open as, as we saw for elective surgeries and for non-COVID related, you know, um, infectious disease management at the moment. You know, how can these people, I mean, heart attacks and strokes continued through the pandemic. And so what were the creative solutions identified to help support these patients while your hospital was inundated, you know, with COVID as we saw last year in the, you know, spring timeframe and then the second wave perhaps in the fall timeframe going into the winter of 2021. And, you know, as we try to recover now in the spring of 2021. So the willingness to try to adopt digital strategies, digital um, physician office visits, multi-camera uh, physician um, history and physicals, and then really pushing the visiting nurse component to actually delivering acute care services at home post-operatively through the use of exciting technology, through the use of constant communication and a command center, really you know, was received well starting in the spring of 2020 by you know, many companies. Huron does not offer the technology, we offer the implementation. So we partnered with a company in Boston called Medically Home, which has a comprehensive EHR and a comprehensive communication and model that literally brings the acute bed and all of the support you need to recover at home instead of staying in the hospital where patients were very, um, you know, frightened of maybe being. You can get your, you know, you can get whatever services are needed, a uh, meals on wheels component for the, or your family, if there's family support for the patient, 
um, you know, the family can cook for the patient. And the discharge actually occurs while the patient is at home. And uh, an actual physical nurse or therapist may make multiple visits to the house every day. There will be internet connections where the patient can communicate with the main hospital to talk about pain meds, They're the IV tubes, the IV, you know, it's the internet of things. All of the associated administration of the care is connected via a high-speed internet, which is set up in 24 hours at a patient's home. So imagine a Mayflower truck that comes to the front door of your apartment or your condo or your house, and in 24 hours sets up an acute care and all the associated communications and um, medical equipment and oxygen bottles. And um, uh, so it's ready for you to literally return to home once you've cleared the ICU or the PACU uh, and clinically it's felt that you can, you know, fare well uh, or, you know, recover at home. And what's also critical is that CMS said Medicare will pay the full DRG and other commercial payers followed the federal government's lead and said, we'll pay as well. And now that these things are being set up by major uh, high branded systems throughout the country, I think the horse has left the barn. I'm not gonna stuff it back into the pen. Um, you know, reimbursement, which is critical, will continue to pay the same rates that they would should the patient be in the hospital. Now, the benefit to the hospital is the triple aim that we talk about and have talked about for years, lower cost, higher quality, predictable and high reliability outcomes. So when you've got a model that can achieve all that, um, that is, um, you know, that is a, I think a great thing and something that will continue on. Acute care at home, I think will be a big product that the pandemic's legacy will leave healthcare. It's a really, really interesting idea. And, 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 um, you know, one of those, one of those examples of with a crisis or with, with an unfortunate circumstance comes opportunity for growth and development and enhancing the patient experience at the end of the day. Um, would you mind kind of drawing a line for us in terms of like what services could be offered in an acute care at home scenario and what sorts of services would not be able to be offered in an acute care at home scenario and still would need to be received in a, um, brick and mortar, you know, facility you know you yeah. mentioned post-op for one is one that could be post-op most post-op i'm guessing could be done in acute care at home so what, what are what, like what, what are some services that could and couldn't um, yeah for there's very strict clinical criteria that would be established the last i checked um in terms of the surgical the roughly 600 uh, D, uh drgs would be candidates for acute care at home out of what the 2500 drgs that are you know in place or in play now we also saw COVID itself being able to be treated, you know, in an acute care. So I think infectious medical diseases could potentially be treated at home. Really, it's the acuity and the pre-existing conditions of the patient. If the patient is at high risk for, you know, uh, you know, cardiac issues, where 30-second response or 20-second response is critical, chances are, as the attending physician or the hospital itself. They're not going to want to put that patient at risk and they're going to keep them in the hospital. But if there isn't that additional medical risk or comorbidities that are out there, you know, the estimates that I've seen is roughly 30% of the surgical patients in an average 
uh, community hospital and roughly 25% of the medical cases uh, could be candidates for acute care at home. Got it, thank you. And you know, when, when I first heard about this, this, this concept, I mean, my, my immediate thought was I was also working on a, on a separate project where separate read about, about access to digital services. And I, and I remembered a, a fact that, you know, there's a significant proportion of Medicare patients, even today in 2021, that don't have access to high bandwidth internet. And you just mentioned as well that in these circumstances, there, there would be, you know, a team that would come out and make sure that they have um, adequate bandwidth to support these digital resources. But I imagine that there are still other risks of a patient's surroundings, especially in the low to, to moderate income, income households, whether it's risk of infection or, or, you know, noise or whatever other environment may, may not help the healing process. So, you know, what kind of tools or resources are, are available or how would you mitigate the risks of a patient's surroundings in an acute care at home scenario? Yeah, so that's what I mean by that. There's not only the clinical risk, but the physical risk as well. So there is a complete, you know, assessment form that would be comprehensively delivered. And if the physical layout of the apartment or the home or the condominium just doesn't allow for a rapid response or a nurse to be able to be there in five or six minutes, if the family infrastructure isn't there, if the home is considered, you know, it can't be cleaned up appropriately, then it's obviously more effective to, um, you know, to keep a patient in the hospital. But a hospital, by the way, is a very noisy place. You've got monitors, you've got bells, you've got alarms, you've got the intercom that's constantly calling out code reds or code blues all the time. I mean, if you think about the last time you visited a friend or you yourself may have been in the hospital, I don't think anybody would ever say that, you know, it was a restful place. It was a place to recover. It was a place to make sure that you didn't get infections. It was a place to try to get as healthy as you can. And quite frankly, it was a place to try to leave as soon as you possibly can. So this whole acute care model at home addresses many of the conditions and concerns that you have in a hospital. So um, again, it is not intended to ever replace the hospital. But if you could take 30 to 50% of the patient's volume and lower the cost of care, increase the quality of care, increase the reliability of the outcome of care, and maybe the fourth dimension, just the patient satisfaction, the Prescani or whatever company you may use to assess that goes off the charts, then you've got a pretty good model to, to deal with. Got it. Yep. Understood. Um, thank you for that. And I know you mentioned earlier, just in terms of this marketplace, that it's mostly major high-branded systems that are that are kind of um, building this out as, as a part of their service service offerings. Are they the major players that you see kind of expanding into this space, or do you see you know home healthcare companies deepening their service offerings or startups, or who do you see entering this market? Yeah, I mean, the big names tend to have the best balance sheets so they can make the investments. And of course, the other thing is they tend to be, you know, successful because they're early adopters and they're willing to try something different. So it's not necessarily intended just for the big name players that are, you know, in our market. It is intended for, you know, virtually the entire acute care industry, but the early adopters and the ones with the balance sheets that are able to make the investments are, are you know, the ones that we've seen in the last year that are, you know, addressing or implementing acute care at home. 
Got it. Yep. Understood. So uh, one other thought too, and I know you mentioned kind of that physical assessment is if the, if the physical needs are met to, to be able to offer this sort of a, um, this sort of a service, whether it's the environment and the family and things like that. I think that one interesting thought too, I think about myself, if, if you know, if, if my, my, my wife, if, you know, she was receiving acute care at home, um, I would be a little bit apprehensive or nervous or maybe feel a little bit overwhelmed at the thought of having a loved one um, in the hospital, at, in, a, in a hospital at home. I would love having her nearby and in the comfort of our own home, but I may feel a little bit nervous, especially if some of the, the tasks and responsibilities for monitoring and looking after her are placed on me. So, you know, how do you sell this to family members that may feel apprehensive or nervous or feel overwhelmed with the thought of having a loved one in a hospital at home? In a, yeah, at home? sure. Um, there's absolutely no requirement for families to have any responsibilities clinically um, at all. And, you know, so all of the monitoring is done via the internet of devices. So IV um, uh, drips and uh, you know, vital sign monitoring are exactly the same as we would see in the acute care setting itself. So that's being monitored by the internet. It's connected to the internet. Um, there would be a nurse that would visit four times a day, twice in the morning, twice in the evening, and if necessary, in the middle of the night for wound care, for example, if a wound needed to be readdressed every six hours. That is not something that the family, unless they volunteered to do that, uh, and, you know, and we're willing to receive training and accept the responsibility. Uh, but there's a command center. You know, think about like, you know, the Houston space, you know, Houston, we, we need, there's a command center that is in constant communication with the patient. And literally, just as we're talking through the computer, the patient can talk through a screen to get immediate care and guidance. Quite frankly, what we have heard now that this has been in the market for several years and with our clients in the last 10 months or so, that the nurses are more responsive than they are, you know, when they're in the hospital, when, a, you know, when a unit nurse may say, um, you know, hey, I can't be there for 20 minutes, you know, please stand by. So medication administration, um, uh, you know, cardiac rhythm, everything is being monitored and managed through a care team that just is not physically there but is there connected, you know, at just as we are today. Got it. Um, well, I wanted to jump back to something you said a little bit earlier as well. Um, and apologies if I, if I missed the miss piece um, of it earlier, but you mentioned earlier that uh, right now this is being reimbursed from CMS at the same rates as, as, as hospital stays, right? Um, right? Is that something that you expect to continue to do? Do you expect CMS to continue to match those rates as well if we look into our crystal ball? Uh, the indications are that they do plan, unless there is data that starts to suggest that there are some adverse outcomes, then um, we believe that both on the commercial side as well as on the Medicare side, that they will continue because of the high levels of achievement of satisfaction and the triple aim components that you know, early data indicates are really being achieved that this will continue as a model going forward. I think there's been a, another one year for 2021 grant of, um, you know, of uh, at least the CFOs I know that are looking into this, uh, an extension of the reimbursement, which is critical at this point. Um, but you know, what will happen over time, especially on the commercial side, is when managed care contracts are up for renewal, 
they now know that you've got a model that can reduce the acute care cost by 30%. Well, they're going to want to see maybe some translation of that, maybe some benefit splitting to say, I'm going to reduce your rate, Christian. But the reason why is because you've come up with an innovative model that is reducing your cost. So, you know, I'd like I'd like to benefit from some of those cost savings. So we would anticipate that there will be some tough negotiations a few years from now. And even CMS may say, instead of increasing the blended, the base blended DRG rates, we're going to see a 0% increase as an incentive to try to find lower costs of delivery. And they'll push the acute care at home model because it's demonstrating, you know, some very substantial economic benefits. But that aside, to answer your direct question, yeah, um, so far it looks like CMS, it will continue to reimburse and the commercials will follow that model, at least for now. Yeah, that's great. I know that this is an area that I've enjoyed hearing more about and seeing as it progresses. I know I, I've had several hospital visits over the course of my life, and I think you hit the nail on the head. There's nothing more uncomfortable than having to sit in the hospital room afterwards, especially for people who are there for extended periods of time that could be done at home. Um, I know we talked about some of the issues a little well, bit. Let me just, Peyton, yeah. if I can add, you know, you could even think through a model where the subacute episodes, you know, so you have a patient that's not ready, you know, in the traditional pre-2019, pre-COVID world, they may get discharged to a skilled nursing facility. Yeah. It's because yeah. they don't need the acute care level anymore, but they're not ready to go home. Imagine being able to change the model of delivery at home from the, you get discharged as an acute episode, and now you're readmitted with um, nursing home systems that are willing to accept a patient at home, and they've got the command center and infrastructure themselves to now go back or to, um, if you will, reduce the level of care to skilled nursing. And now the acute care at home is now skilled nursing at home or subacute care at home. And the patient never needs to be transferred via ambulance or any other way. So you're reducing those costs. And the patient uh, doesn't have to learn a new environment of care. They're now not going from acute hospital to skilled nursing hospital, they're still home, still getting the same, you know, same services, but they haven't had to change. So think about that continuum of care model as well. Uh, I think that, you know, it's limited only by creativity, which I would say doesn't exist super well in healthcare, but I think creativity is starting to take its rightful place um, driven by the pandemic, but you know the excitement of people being able to think through different things, leveraging technology and yeah. digital. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I agree hundred percent. I would be curious to know, as you've looked through this and thought through this, what are providers' thoughts on this as they go? Um, how do they feel about being in the command center and giving care remotely? Um, is there pushback to that? Or is there, are the outcomes so good that they're excited about this opportunity? As you would expect, there's, um, you know, there, there's some skepticism. There's change management issues. Uh, you know, I've had clients who says, I'll never adopt this because... Well, they're a, they're a you know a thousand bed hospital, and their incentive is heads and beds. But I think the astute leaders of healthcare recognize that digital health is here to stay. 
and that reimbursement mechanism. I mean, reimbursement rates are not going to keep up with inflation. They never really have. And we've got to, you know, for overall sustainability. And then you add in the concepts of population health management and the concepts of ambulatory care management and more and more and more care is being delivered on an outpatient setting. I'm sure you have learned those things in classes and as well as your internships, et cetera. You add all those factors in, you know, it's just a matter of time that even the most resistant, traditional um, academic medical center is going to say, you know, acute care in different settings is something that we need to embrace and adopt. Um, and so, you know, wearable devices are starting to proliferate as well. Um, the concept of, of having a diabetic or a heart patient have their pulse constantly being monitored by their wearables. And if there is an arrhythmia or a spike in blood sugar, glucose, occur, a message is immediately sent to your primary care physician. The office calls you and says, Peyton, I'm noticing an arrhythmia. We're very concerned about that. Please come in and see us tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Or when's the earliest you can come in and see us? And you go, I feel fine. And they say, yeah, but your wearable just indicated an issue. I mean, to me, you know, being able to, you know, proactively deal with healthcare, that's our future. And whether that will resonate within a large multi-specialty medical group, whether that will be mandated by the payer, or whether that will be driven by the acute care hospital in the, in the, in the city, um, I think all those um, factors will come into play. But I believe that in general, that's what consumerism will demand, and those that have it will get the patients, and those that don't will be left behind. Yeah, very well said. And I, I know I wear an Apple Watch, and I'm uh, what I consider to be a young, 20, healthy 23-year-old male. Um, and, you know, one day it pinged me and told me that I had unusual heart activity and I went to a cardiologist and I turned out I did. Um, and so it's very helpful, I think, for a lot of people, the, the level of information we can get from that. So, um, well, Rich, before we go, we always ask our guests one kind of key question, um, and we'd love to post that to you. And that is aspiring healthcare leaders as they come up and, and begin their jobs and are going through school, what's one tool that you would recommend they add to their professional toolkit? Wow, that's a great, great question. Uh, I probably have to give you a few. Number one is graduate from a you know top 10 program and certainly Cornell is one of those. So you've already made a great decision by matriculating to Cornell. I guess I'm a little biased in that myself. But, you know, the university that you get educated on not only provides the foundation and, you know, a great program, but it also gives you um, the network, the alumni network that you can, you know, utilize. So, um, you know, getting a social footprint or a fingerprint, you know, in, in the professional um, media, not necessarily the personal one. So LinkedIn is one that I'm actually a fan of. I have found many, many people that I've lost track of by looking them up in LinkedIn. So, you know, understanding and, you know, using those skill sets, uh, because in life, what you will find as you, is you, as you develop and as you, pro, you know, it's your network of professional people that you develop over time that probably largely more than just about anything else will um, help you uh, 
progress in your professional endeavors. It really is an important thing that, tell you the truth, it took me a heck of a long time to understand. I could give you a traditional answer that says, have great technical skills, have great spreadsheet skills, have great PowerPoint skills. But really after the first, at most five years of your career, there will be a younger analyst that will be hired underneath you. And they'll take over all that. And so what are you expected? You know, what are you gonna do when all of a sudden your technical skills are no longer what drives your progress going forward? So yes, I could say to get your first job, having communication skills, critical thinking skills, uh, you know, those kinds of things definitely help. Um, but if I had to really say, what's the one thing to think through, it's, it really is um, developing your professional network, identifying a coach that has an interest in you uh, professionally um, to help mentor and guide you along your career. And then the networks for when you may be looking for your next job or selling services, whether you're in technology or consulting, um, or the network will always um, uh, be valuable to you in a variety of ways. So maybe a non-traditional answer, but uh, you know, as I reflect on 35 years uh, of uh, you know, what, what is driving me forward now, it's continuing to build my network as something that um, you know, still is exciting today. And part of that network is building relationships with students who become young leaders who uh, you know, continue to challenge me and teach me as much as maybe I help to you know, provide to them as well. Very well said. I think I, I definitely underestimated the value of networking um, beginning a, the MHA program. And it's something that I've learned um, is significantly helpful along the way. Well, Rich, thank you so much for taking time to join us. We're, we're so grateful you shared a lot of insights on consulting and acute care. And we, we really appreciate your time. This has been great. Thank you so much.